0: and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive due to this case's graphic nature we require extreme caution for children under 13. everyone grabs his beer and let's talk some true crime to be honest there is nothing more tragic in the world of true crime than the murder of a child yet there is something about this case in particular that scars researchers more than most In June of 1977, three young Girl Scouts went off to summer camp for two weeks of adventure and fun, but they would not return. They would have been scared on their first night in the dark, dense, and unfamiliar woodland of Camp Scott. Hopefully, they were comforted somewhat by what we all tell our kids. There are no monsters, and there is nothing to be scared of. But, for these three unfortunate children, those words were a well-meaning lie, And their murder reminds us all that sometimes we do lie if only to make ourselves feel better. Usually, there are no ramifications as awful as what happened at Camp Scott. If their killing was not wrong enough, the trial and acquittal of the only official suspect was like salt in the wound, a wound that has never healed for those involved. Was he a guilty man, acquitted off the back of a terrible police investigation? Or was he framed because of his race and prior convictions as for some belief? This video aims to cover the extensive story that is the case of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. In 1928 the camp opened its doors to girls from 10 to 18 years of age, allowing them to spend a couple of summer weeks in the beautiful Ozark Hills of Oklahoma. A brochure from 1946 is still available till now and gives a great insight into what the camp was like back then. Cover image from the 1946 Camp Scott brochure. By 1977, the Magic Empire Girl Scout Council was being run and had grown to include 10 campsites, a great hall, and a swimming pool. Situated within 410 acres to the left bank of Snake Creek, Each camp was placed near the main thoroughfare, the Cookie Trail. The sites were given Native American tribe names. They consisted of canvas tents atop wooden platforms, roughly set around a stone encircled campfire. The girls would find themselves, new friends and playmates, within their tribe, safely overseen by counselors who would have their own tent. There was enough room for four scouts to share each tent. Girls arriving at the camp would have been driven by bus, heading in from the north entrance, which is not visible on this diagram. Map showing the southern half of Camp Scott, not all 10 campsites are visible. Some of these features are still visible on Google Maps today. Positions are approximate. The land lay sometimes dictated that the tents were not evenly spaced, nor were the campsites placed equally along the Cookie Trail. Because of this, Kiowa Camp happened to be set furthest west and more isolated away from the trail. And within Kiowa Camp, Tent 8 was set slightly apart. Its view from the counselor's tent was also obscured by the shower block. We will examine this layout later. When researching this case, you may sometimes find the victim's tent referred to as either Tent 7 or Tent 8. This is due to two conventions the camp had in numbering the tents, depending on whether they included the council as tents. Therefore both numbers can be used correctly, but I stick with tent number 8 as I think that is used most commonly. Although the Oklahoma landscape sounds ideal for childhood exploration, the dense woodland can also seem foreboding and scary. Locals describe unease feelings or being watched which they put down to the lack of visibility in some parts of the forest. One can easily imagine how amplified those feelings would be in the pitch black of the night once the campfire had died out. Literally, it was their first, and last, night of the camp. On June 12, 1977, the busloads of Girl Scouts entered Camp Scott, a few miles south of Locust Grove, Oklahoma. Only once they arrived did they find out which campsite they were assigned to. 18-year-olds Carla Wilhite and Susan Ewing, and Dee Elder, 20, were appointed counselors to Kiowa Camp. Amongst their 27 girls, three would be assigned to 10.8 Lori Lee Farmer, 8, Michelle Heather Guse, 9, and Doris Denise Milner, 10. The evening brought with it a rainy thunderstorm, and the girls spent time in their tents writing letters to their families. The counselors would not have been looking forward to this first night, as it was often punctuated by the screams and giggles of the overexcited girls as they got used to their new surroundings. But there were strange occurrences during the night. We may not be sure who it was, but we can be confident that someone was stalking the campsites once darkness settled over the forest. It is impossible to create an exact timeline, but testimony from various parties paints a detailed picture. It is difficult to say whether, in hindsight, more should have been done to investigate at the time. But we must also realize that a nighttime search of thick undergrowth would have been very impractical and probably fruitless. Could a counselor have stayed guard at each site all night? Yes, but would that have seemed reasonable at the time? it is hard to say. Let me tell you about the timeline of the night June 12th into June 13th. At some time before 10 p.m. on June 12th, the counselor of Comanche Camp sees the light in the forest moving north towards Kiowa Camp. At 10 p.m., D. Elder makes a tent check of Kiowa and is satisfied that everything is okay. Around midnight, Carla Wilhite has to head over to the restrooms to escort some noisy girls back to their tents. By 1.30 am, girls in tent 6 are still making noise, and the understandably frustrated Carla Wilhite shines her torch in their direction and shouts at them to stop. It is at that time that she hears a strange sound coming from behind the tents. Someone cry for the children, one can sense that she struggles to find the words to accurately describe it, A low, guttural sound somewhat like a frog and a bullhorn. When she shines her torch in the direction of the noise, it stops. She heads back to her tent and goes to sleep. The noise is heard intermittently after that. Around 3 a.m., there are two reports of girls in other camps being woken by noises. One piece is of a single scream. May have been earlier, around 1 a.m., and the other is of a girl crying out for her mother. Around the same time, someone moves through Kiowa camp, reaching into tents and stealing items, notably purses and several pairs of prescription glasses. The last story from a surviving witness is from the girls in tent 7, who say that their tent flap was pulled back and a man shone a light into the tent. After a few seconds, the flap was replaced, and he moved on to tent 8. At 6 AM, June 13th, The cold light of day. After what must have been a difficult night for the counselors, Carla Wilhite's alarm went off at 6 AM so that she could shower before her girls awoke. From the camp map above, we can see that, after exiting her tent, she would have headed east towards Quapa Camp and the staff house. As she did so, something caught her eye at the fork of the trail. Initially thinking it to be forgotten or lost luggage, she walked over to investigate. As she approached the bundles, she could suddenly make out the body of a girl lying next to them, face up and naked from the waist down. This close-up of the Kiowa campsite area shows a few critical environmental factors in the case. Tent 8 is obscured from the counselor's tent by the shower block. The killer or killers also had to move three bodies some distance to where they were found. Carla Wilhite would have been heading east towards the staff house when she noticed the sleeping bags and body the following morning. All positions are approximate and based on a recent aerial picture of the campsite. I have tried to place the scene in the picture as it appears on the actual landscape as provided by Google Maps. An overhead shot was made of the campsite at the time of the murders. It looks like the camera is facing west in this image. What happens next varies from person to person, which is perfectly understandable given the situation. Most staff training, even today, would leave a young adult feeling quite helpless given the scene they came across. I would also be more suspicious of staff if stories matched too closely. In any case, we can piece together an adequate timeline from pre-trial statements. After realizing she had discovered a body, Carla Wilhite did the right thing, in my view. She immediately woke Dee and Susan to help her with a check on the other children. Dee starts by checking tent 8, where it is clear that all three children are missing. Carla runs to the nurse's station, which, again, is a logical move, in my opinion. She has first checked her children are safe and then rushed to get medical aid for the one known casualty. As the nurse drives up to Kiowa camp, Carla heads to the director's house to inform camp director Barbara Day of what is happening. On arriving at the body, the nurse checks for a pulse, but it is clear the girl, Denise Milner is dead. She has apparent head injuries, and her hands are still tied behind her back. The nurse is soon joined by Richard Day the husband of Barbara, who discovers the other two bodies in the sleeping bags. Later these would be confirmed as being Lori Farmer and Michelle Guse. He also places another sleeping bag over the naked lower half of Denise. Barbara Day, meanwhile, has to call Highway Patrol Officer Harold Barry as the 911 service is not yet in existence. The three girls found after Richard Day had placed a sleeping bag over Denise Milner to preserve her modesty. Other staff then have the difficult task of managing the other girl scouts in apparent normality. By all accounts, they pulled this off successfully, and the girls were driven back to Tulsa later that day. Unbeknownst to them, their parents had an agonizing wait at the bus station, having been informed that there had been an accident still the names of the girls involved had not been released it would become a point of contention later that the victims families were all told that their children had died in an accident with no other details forthcoming this may not be as negligent as it sounds as the camp staff was in no position to decide how the children had died Nonetheless, it was a terrible shock upon shock to the grieving parents when they found out through the media that the deaths of their daughters were no accident. By 8 a.m. on June 13, Sheriff Glenn Weaver knew he would need the assistance of a larger force and requested help from the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. This was the police at the site where Lori Farmer, Michelle Guse, and Denise Milner were found. They found crime scene evidence a highway patrol officer Harold Barry was the first law enforcement officer at the scene. He kept the area around the bodies clear of interference. He is also optimistic that he could only see one boot print set leading from Kiowa camp to the dump site. However, he does also point out that due to the size of Camp Scott and the necessity of bussing out dozens of Girl Scouts, the general scene was not secured until much later. The killer had approached from the rear and unhooked the backflaps to gain entry at Tent 8 itself. Investigators believe that Lori and Michelle were both bludgeoned to death inside the tent, judging by blood spatter on the canvas walls and wooden floor. They were both sexually assaulted. The bootprint left in the tent after the killer tried mopping up the blood. Although the killer tried to clean up the blood using bed sheets, one bootprint was left. It was measured as a size 9.5. No fingerprints were found. Tent 8 from the front, once police had raised the flaps. Denise Milner had been bound and her mouth stuffed with a pre-made gag before being walked over to the area where the bodies were eventually found. She was sexually assaulted, bludgeoned, and strangled to death. This is the view of Tent 8 from the other side of the campfire. Someone approaching the rear of the tent would be almost impossible to spot, even in the daytime. For some reason, the killer felt the need to mop up the blood from the tent floor. Were there more boot prints or fingerprints to hide? And why did they move the other two bodies almost 140 meters to where Denise was lying? This seems like a statement of some sort, as it would have taken a lot of effort. The attacks had definitely been planned in advance. Denise's gag was pre-sewn, and the killer had also brought along nylon rope and duct tape for binding the victims. Semen was found on each body, and a red flashlight was found next to them. Was this flashlight the one people had seen moving through the camp the night before? The autopsy would further confound the case when the coroner found that weapons used were held in both the left and right hands. It was also evident that more than one weapon was used in the bludgeoning and two different knots had been used in tying the girls. Were these signs of a second killer? The guns themselves were never found. It was soon learned that the rope and tape had recently been stolen from a farm one mile from Camp Scott. The farmer, Jack Schroff, had an alibi for the night in question and also passed a voluntary lie detector test. But this did not stop local media from printing his picture under the headline, Slayer, in an early article. This would be the opening salvo in a case that would begin to pit police against media against the community. Before long, the locals would also be fractured by claims of racism, planted evidence, and mistrust. The investigation was only to get more complicated. The only other physical evidence seemed to be a hair caught in the duct tape that did not belong to one of the girls. Within a couple of days, the OSBI had eliminated all obvious males as suspects, namely Jack Schroff, Richard Day, and Camp Ranger Ben Woodward. Sheriff Weaver had one more man on his mind who, at first glance, was a likely suspect. Cherokee Indian Jean Leroy Hart had been on the run for four years after escaping from Weaver's own Mays County Jail. He was known to be in the Ozarks area. In later years, the fact he had evaded Weaver led many to believe a personal vendetta was driving the manhunt. This was exacerbated by the fact that not one piece of physical evidence tied him to the scene at this time. On the other side, Jean Leroy Hart, aged 34 at the time of the murders, was no saint. It is not hard to see why the OSBI thought he was a good suspect. It is also not hard to believe that a sheriff would want revenge on a man that had evaded him for four years. The reason he was on the run was no small matter in itself. In 1966, he abducted two pregnant women from outside a nightclub, drove to a forest on the outskirts of Locust Grove, and raped them. The women were bound with duct tape and rope, and he had used their prescription glasses while driving. After the rapes, in an apparent attempt at homicide, he closed off their noses and mouths with duct tape and left them to die in the woods. Luckily the victims survived. One described Hart as being, incoherent, during the rape, and that he made strange, growling noises. Hart disappeared while on parole for these crimes eventually arrested a second time for burglary. He was known to have committed three in total. In each case, the victims were asleep in their houses at the time. Many burglars do not risk that kind of activity. They have no desire to be in proximity to the people they are robbing. The fact Hart did this on multiple occasions would not be looked on favorably by a forensic psychologist today. Hart admitted to both the rapes and burglaries, sentenced to a total of 305 years. The harshness of the sentence reflected the fact he had tried to evade the first trial, attempted to kill his rape victims, and committed further crimes while on parole. It must have really got to Weaver that Hart managed to escape his jail in 1973 by sawing through the bars to his cell window. However, given the description above, Jean Leroy Hart still makes an excellent suspect, and the OSBI was right to hunt him down after four years on the run. On the trial of the suspect it was suspected that many in the Cherokee community were helping Hart to evade capture in the weeks that followed. At the time of the manhunt, Angie Jake, editor of the Tulsa Indian News, said, Hart pulled the wool over the police's eyes for so long, and he frustrated them. So, when his name popped up, they blamed it on him. And Ross Swimmer, Principal Chief of the Cherokee Nation in 1977, said, These people were acting emotionally, simply trying to help out a fellow Cherokee. Fears grew that Hart was being framed as rumors began that the OSBI planted evidence to convict him. It was also leaked to the press that sperm was found in the semen evidence, but Hart was known to have had a vasectomy. Not all Cherokee felt the same. OSBI agents Larry Bowles and Harvey Pratt were both from the same tribe, and they received help from a respected medicine man named Crying Wolf. It was undoubtedly a challenging time for relations between the different peoples of Oklahoma. To say the hunt was tough on searchers would be an understatement. This map gives an idea of the area's size and how much of it is covered in dense woodland on steep hills. Various points of interest have been tagged tracker dogs were brought in but created no leads the forest was so dense that it was not uncommon for some of the 600 searchers to become lost on occasion one searcher found themselves covered in over 100 ticks after a single day another quit after one session as the going was too harsh but mainly with tip-offs from locals clues did start to trickle in three promising leads involved caves Cave 1, in the mountain overlooking Camp Scott, OSBI agent Arthur Leanville found a cave with some unusual items. Red underwear, a picture of two women, which looked like a wedding photo, and a newspaper were found along with a pair of glasses that belonged to a Camp Scott counselor. A further link to the camp was made when it was discovered that part of the newspaper had been torn out and matched some found inside the red flashlight at the crime scene. The paper had been used to wedge the batteries and restore a loose connection. The pictures of the women were publicized nationwide, and it paid off. A prison officer recognized them from a part-time job as a wedding photographer. As part of a photography course in prison, Jean Leroy Hart had helped develop the photos. It also transpired that the cave, and Camp Scott, were within walking distance of Hart's mother's home. Cave 2 two weeks after the murders, a farmer reported that he had seen Gene Hart on a hillside. On further investigation, Agent Harvey Pratt found this formation of four fires and cigarette butts. As a Cherokee himself, Pratt recognized the formation, the cedar wood used, and the fact the cigarette's filters were torn off as an indication of a native Indian smoke ritual. The butts tested positive for the same O-type blood as Hart. A boot print was also found that matched the size of the bloody image in Tent 8. And here we have a conundrum, for Jean Leroy Hart had size 11 feet. Was this another indication of a second killer? And for Cave 3, it was found around one mile from the camp, on the land of Jack Schroff. A prisoner confined in police about its existence, claiming he had met Hart there after the murders. This prisoner was 16 years old at the time and would later be convicted of killing his own three-year-old son. It does not appear that the OSBI pursued this informant as a suspect in the Girl Scout murders. This ominous message was written on the cave wall. The unusual date format is said to be used by both the military and the prison system. There is much discussion online about this cave writing. Was this a prank being pulled by the 16-year-old prisoner? Or was it the real killer? As we will examine later, there are other clues that the killer may have communicated with Camp Scott before the murders, so it is not out of the question. As well as all of the online debate this case has created over the years, locals at the time were inundated with regular newspaper articles on the story of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Due to Camp Scott's size, it was hard for law enforcement to secure it while they searched for evidence. In the weeks after the murders, a security company was employed to guard the camp, which had now been vacated of all staff. According to these security guards, there was evidence that someone was still stalking the camp, leaving footprints in fresh sand and leaving doors open that had previously been shut. They also spoke of seeing silhouettes in the dense woodland on multiple occasions, and sometimes dogs were used to try and track whoever was out there. One time, a dog returned to the tracker shaken, and seemed to have been struck on the head. The guards began leaving threads tied between trees to see which paths the intruder was using. They would find these broken, confirming that it was not just their imagination in the spooky remains of the camp. Just like the descriptions of the moving light on the night of the murders, I can only imagine this kind of activity being carried out by someone very familiar with the area. Most significantly, however, is the story of Denise Milner's shoes. The facts vary depending on the teller, but something unusual definitely happened, as demonstrated by this article in the Frederick Daily Leader, July 31, 1977. On this occasion, Guards returned to the Great Hall, which was acting as their office, after searching for the intruder when they found a bag had been left by the door. This bag contained pink socks and a pair of tennis shoes with the name, Denise Milner, written inside. Both socks and shoes were wet. Denise's mother is insistent that pink socks and tennis shoes were missing from the items returned to her. Equally, the OSBI insists that all shoes were accounted for. There is no doubting Mrs. Milner. But did the OSBI make a mistake? Did the killer leave a memento, toying with the guards? Or was it a simple administrative error by scene of crime workers? In contradiction to the official line, Tom Kennedy, Deputy Director of the OSBI at the time, said that two pairs of shoes were already in evidence lockers. He believed those found by the security guards were to be viewed as a separate piece of evidence if you see the final column in the Tulsa Tribune article. Nothing came of this lead. The OSBI gave varying accounts as to the significance of Denise's shoes. Was this a mistake or evidence of crime scene manipulation? Considering the stories of what occurred at Camp Scott in the run-up to June 12th. I can easily believe that a vicious person was stalking those hills both before and after the murders. But was it Jean Leroy Hart? After nearly 10 months of hunting, the OSBI got the break they needed. Agent Larry Bowles worked with an informant in the Cherokee community and discovered that Hart was hiding out with a friend, Sam Pigeon, 50 miles east of Camp Scott. The pigeon was convinced of his innocence and had let him live in his three-room shack for the past eight months sam pigeon's shack where gene hart was hiding out for eight months on april 6 1978 osbi officers surrounded the shack and arrested gene leroy hart agent larry bowles states that as he cuffed Hart, he asked you killed those little girls didn't you hart's reply was apparently You'll never pin it on me." It was also noted that Hart was wearing women's prescription glasses at the time of his arrest. Agent Larry Bowles is shown here on the left of Jean Leroy Hart during the arrest in 1978. One of the ugliest aspects of this case is the effect the trial had on all involved. Firstly we must acknowledge the pain and suffering this event will have caused the parents of the victims. Victim support was non-existent in those days and, If that wasn't bad enough, there were strong feelings of resentment directed at them by those who thought Hart was innocent. While we can fully understand that a community under threat would be hurt and upset, the wrong targets were chosen for their frustration, and it only added to the horror those poor parents were living through. The community did have reasonable cause for concern, however. There was very little physical evidence tying Hart to the scene. The known animosity of Sheriff Weaver, and accusations of planted evidence to contend with. The strength of feeling was highlighted when over 400 people attended a Locust Grove fundraising dinner to raise Hart's defense money. Hart showed himself to be a charismatic individual who was aware of the power of the media. He gave a televised interview before the trial where he stoked up these feelings bubbling within the community, Maybe I represent the fears and doubts that many people have about any system that has the means and the power to overwhelm each and every one of us. People also conveniently forgot that Hart was already a brutal rapist before this case came to light. To top it all off, even once the trial was over, the parents had another battle to fight once they found out that Camp Scott may have had some liability in the events that took place. Not off to a good start headlines like this rocked the case from the start. The headline was an early blow for the prosecution. Mays County District Attorney Sid Wise was found to have signed a contract with the prior Daily News editor. They agreed to share case information for a book once the trial was over. Wise, quite rightly, had to withdraw from the case, and it was handed to Tulsa County DA Buddy Fallis, who became a principal prosecutor. A lot of the evidence mentioned thus far is circumstantial. We have Hart's prior modus operandi with the two rapes that closely match the binding methods, the strange guttural noises, and the apparent need or fetish to wear women's glasses. These prior convictions were not raised at the Girl Scout murders trial, so the jury would not have been aware of the similarities. The wedding photos found in one cave effectively linked Hart to the newspaper and, therefore, the red flashlight. These photos are evidence that the defense claim was planted, but they have no proof of that. Other evidence that the OSBI was accused of planting came from Sam Pigeon's shack. The three-room building had been searched on Hart's arrest, and it is hard to believe anything was missed. But, on a second visit, the OSB announced they had found a pipe and mirror stolen from a Camp Scott counselor. One point I never see raised is the movement of the killer on the night of the 12th to the 13th of June. Suppose the terrain was as rugged and inhospitable as described. In that case, it must have taken someone with considerable knowledge of the area and bushcraft know how to navigate at night. This could indeed only point to Jean Leroy Hart as having those very skills? There were only two usable forensic evidence items the hair trapped in the duct tape and the semen collected at the scene. An analyst tested the hair and was 99% certain that it matched Gene Hart's, but this was before DNA testing was available and was not infallible. The semen evidence is more compelling. The prosecution employed the top U.S. fertility expert services, Professor John McLeod, to examine the semen. He noted a rare abnormality in a large number of the sperm present. It was later discovered that Gene Hart's vasectomy had failed, he had sperm present in semen, and his sperm also had this abnormality. But, again, with no DNA testing available, no exact match could be made. This is an odd case where the defense's strength was not that much greater than the already weak prosecution. The hair and semen evidence did favor guilt but was not conclusive. The boot print in the tent was too small to be Hart's, and none of his fingerprints were found. A single fingerprint was found on the flashlight lens, which the defense is adamant is no match to the suspect. However, more neutral articles claim that the print was too smudged to be of any use to either side. The boot print, use of left and right hands to attack and two weapons pointed to there being at the very least a second suspect to consider. Still, the defense showed that the OSBI had developed blinkered vision when it came to Hart. We shall examine some of the other suspects shortly, but it seems there was never any headway made in that regard. We must also consider that if Hart was present, he could have successfully wiped his bootmarks off the tent floor. Finally, gene hart had one alibi for the night in question his uncle who died while he was on the run i am not sure that a jury would have given much weight to a related alibi in any case the possibility of other suspects although this article concerns the 1996 petition to have a grand jury re-investigate the evidence it is proof that other suspects could have been considered the article is from long after the trial 2002 But it is evident that there were other men the OSBI should have investigated in more detail at the time of the murders. This is, of course, a pitfall of the armchair detective. For all we know, the OSBI holds extensive files on these men that led to nothing. A future FOIA request may help with this in a few years. A lot of the chatter online about other suspects amounts to little more than hearsay, but some areas are worth attention the investigator that brought some of the other suspects' names to light in the grand jury petition apparently had to go into hiding because they threatened his life. It appears that particular investigation petered out as a result, and the grand jury was never called. In 1979 Stevens was serving a life sentence with associate DeWayne Peters for the kidnap and rape of a teacher. The OSBI interviewed Peters after he told them Stevens had confessed to the Girl Scout murders in 1977. If the paper article is to be believed, he was seen the morning after the murders with blood on his hands. There is a different twist to the Stevens angle that gives it more credence. In the trial notes available online, Joyce Payne, mother to one of Stevens' friends Larry Payne, gave a statement to police. According to defense attorney Garvin Isaacs, Joyce identified the flashlight mentioned as being the same one found at the crime scene. It later transpired that Joyce Payne was having a relationship with Dwayne Peters, and they may have been plotting to win Peters a lesser sentence for cooperation in this case. This promising lead looks to have been a hoax. Dr. McLeod also examined semen samples from both Stevens and Peters and found they were no match for the abnormal samples taken at Camp Scott. The witness who saw blood on Stevens' hands was not involved in that hoax, so that question remains unanswered. Stevens himself always denied involvement and committed suicide in prison in 1984 but, in true fashion for this case, his suicide is a suspected homicide. There is not a great deal known about why these two related men would be suspects in this case. It may be that they were implicated in the grand jury petition. Both were apparently evasive with the OSBI when questioned, with James even insisting on a lawyer. And there is a rumor that Frank Justice was friendly with Jean Leroy Hart and may have used one of the caves on occasion. James was eventually imprisoned for another murder so he was obviously capable of such a crime, but the trail goes stone-cold beyond that. A suspect not mentioned in the article, I am not sure if he was known to the press at that time. He was said to have an IQ of around 90 after suffering a head injury as a child, which also changed his behavior. In the summer of 1977, aged 29, he abducted a 12-year-old girl from Pitcher, oklahoma and drove her to a rural area after raping and choking her but letting her live he drove her back to town where she reported the crime he was also suspected of the murder of julie miller 13 who disappeared two weeks before the girl scout murders after being released from prison in the 1990s he was subsequently re-imprisoned for a further two rapes and murders John Russell, a former cellmate of Myers, claims he confessed to the murders. He believed Myers to the extent that, a few years ago, he released a film named, Candles, based on the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. There is some skepticism as to whether he has been influenced commercially by this particular story. The 18-year-old Jimmy Bryan was murdered in July 1977 in Cherokee County, which bordered Mays County. In an interview with KJRH-TV in 1992, Jimmy's father claims that his son was killed by the same people who killed the three Girl Scouts, because they could not trust him to keep quiet. Wesley Duffield, 23, was eventually convicted of the murder, and it is suspected he had help from his brother Jesse, 20. It is interesting to note that their father committed suicide rather than testify against Wesley in the trial, and it was also thought that the father had taken the kids with him on burglary runs. With Jesse later being convicted on a rape charge, the Duffield men should be looked at more closely in this case. In an interview with The Oklahoman on June 14, 2017, someone identified only as a landowner says that they heard quite a bit of vehicular traffic on a remote road near the camp between 2.30 and 3.00 a.m., This is an extremely important statement that seems to have fallen through the cracks. Why was it not investigated further? Who was driving, and how many cars made up, quite a bit of traffic? Over the course of six hours of deliberation, with no Native Americans on the jury, Jean Leroy Hart was found not guilty. The result was a sensational shock to both sides, and shockwaves would result. 22 agents resigned from the OSBI after the trial, whether through emotional distress or questions of integrity. DA Buddy Fallis also left, telling reporters that he believed Hart was the one and only guilty party. Lori Farmer's mother describes being ushered into the judge's chamber after the trial, where he told her, Sometimes in our system of justice, even those who are guilty walk free. After the trial, Hart was transported back to prison to live out the remaining 300 years of his other sentences. A few weeks later, on June 4, 1979, he took a run in the prison yard after some vigorous exercise. During that run, he suffered a severe heart attack, collapsed and died. The autopsy on his body confirmed for sure that his vasectomy had not been successful, Again forgetting that this man was already a convicted rapist and guilty of attempted murder, 1300 people attended his funeral. In 2008 it was announced that further testing had been done on the available DNA evidence. For the most part, it was a depressing situation, given that the evidence had not been stored well enough to preserve the samples properly. But there was one interesting result as reported by The Oklahoman, June 25, 2008. It is interesting to read that Lori Farmer's mother believes that a female was present during the attacks. I can find no source where she elaborates on that point. But it must also be considered that not all three girls could be excluded from the result. Not only that, by 2008, There was no way to tell whether it was contamination from an innocent tent visit by a counselor or other Girl Scout before the murders took place. Yet again we are presented with a frustrating dead end. I can find no record of the OSBI ever suspecting any female camp staff member of being involved in these crimes in any way. The trial against Jean Leroy Hart brought other matters to the surface namely that there may have been grounds to suspect the girls at the camp were in danger before June 12, 1977. The three victims' families sued the Magic Empire Girl Scouts Council for $2.5 million each. There are records in the form of newspaper articles and witness testimony that show Camp Scott was being stalked by a dangerous person or persons for years before the murders. It appears that at no time were law enforcement called or any changes made to improve safety, and yet the families lost the suit. Let us examine those events for ourselves. Former head counselor Constance Cunningham testified that in the 1971 summer season, she spent a night huddled inside a scout tent with four girls and a gun. The reason she gave was that a strange man had entered the tent the night before. This vigil was the culmination of two years of frightening intrusions. From the Oklahoman, March 21, 1985. During her two years as counselor, campers and counselors' tents were ransacked on several occasions. During both years, campers and counselors spotted intruders at night inside the 410-acre camp, she said. The former counselor said she talked to camp director Helen Gray in 1970 after campers came to her and told her they were hearing heavy breathing outside their tents at night. The next year, Gray called a meeting with the counselors who knew about the previous year's incidents. She cautioned us not to say a thing of what had gone on the summer before to the new counselors. Cunningham said. She didn't want them upset contents also describes the story of another counselor who heard a man shouting help help me but could not find anyone when she searched for them news article clipping of the daily times taken from girl Scout website the story matches that told in the oklahoman on march 21, 1985. this next article one found from the oklahoman archives website dated the day before on March 20, 1985. This includes an updated story where a man was seen standing in one of the girls' tents. On another occasion, someone tried to break into a locked cabin as the girls inside screamed for help. With stories like these being told, it is a surprise that the Magic Empire was not held at least somewhat accountable for child safety. It is clear that men with dark motives knew that Camp Scott was an easy target. It is also unlikely that Jean Hart was responsible for every incident, especially the ones from the early 1970s. But some things happened in the weeks leading up to the murders that could very well have been done by the killer. Once counselor, Michelle Hoffman, testified that in April 1977, her eyeglasses were stolen from a cabin. She also had donuts stolen out of a box, replaced by an ominous note that read, Four girls will be murdered at camp this summer. If this wasn't a testimony given under oath, it would sound like an urban legend. Would a killer really be that brazen? Or was it a horrible prank that became a chance premonition? Unfortunately, the note has deemed a joke at the time and thrown away. Apparently, an effigy of a man was also found hanging from a tree around the same time, but this was discounted by Barbara Day. The three pages of Carla's pre-trial testimony from which that edited extract is taken can be viewed in full here. Carla Wilhite pre-trial testimony part three. Carla Wilhite pre-trial testimony part one. Carla Wilhite pre-trial testimony part two. Carla Wilhite pre-trial testimony part three. This testimony also mentioned the six-inch tear that was found on the rear of tent 7 on June 12 before the girls arrived. It was never ascertained whether this tear was done by knife or weather, but considering there had been other stories of tents being slashed with a knife, it is logical to assume that this time was no different. Whether or not Magic Empire should be morally responsible for what happened in 1977 is difficult to answer. but. Whatever someone may think of that, I am sure most people would agree that the camp's attendance on June 12th would have been far lower if these stories had been public knowledge. In 2018 the Mays County Sheriff announced that they would be carrying out a new round of DNA testing. As of August 2019, it has been 18 months with no word of a result. I fear the samples are far too contaminated or degraded by now to yield results. But there is also the hope that they have fallen silent due to new leads, or they may be pursuing traditional DNA routes made famous by the Ear-Ons case. I also have my doubts as to the success of any genealogy-based search. The Ear-Ons case was quite unique in that a few highly dedicated officers and retirees acted as archivists for a lot of the evidence. This ensured the investigation would never suffer from problems of this nature, although many rape kits were destroyed once the statute of limitations had expired. We had already been told in 2008 that the DNA testing was inconclusive. There is a slim hope that recent advances in that technology will overcome those problems. Finally, we have the problem of Gene Hart's ancestry or any other suspect of Native American origin. We may find that the community as a whole has shunned this fashion for genealogy websites and there may be very little base data to work with. Do you think Jean Leroy Hart, guilty or innocent? I am not surprised that the jury found him not guilty at the trial, given that much of the evidence is circumstantial and there was suspicion that some of it were planted. It results in a fragile prosecution case, especially as they did not know of his prior convictions. But the one solid piece of forensic evidence, the semen with unusual sperm, is a big red flag to me. There is an Oklahoman article dated October 25, 1989, that states two sources at the FBI told them of confidential tests run on the semen evidence. Three of the five tests run indicated a match to heart. This apparently gave odds of one in 7,700 Native Americans. This may not be the one in three billion we would see from a five-fifths result, but it is another pointer towards him without a doubt. We also have the strange noises, duct tape, and rope similarities to crimes he had admitted to, and burglarizing homes with victims present but asleep. It sounds innocuous enough, but that kind of behavior is common amongst criminals who eventually escalate to murder. Once we also consider the behavior of the stalker around camp before June 12th, I feel that only someone very familiar with the landscape could be capable of that. Gene Hart had been on the run in that area for four years, so he easily qualifies. On balance, I think the OSBI got their man, but did he work alone? The size 9.5 boot print, the witness who heard traffic on the road around 2.30-3 to 3 am, and the bludgeoning evidence suggests otherwise. But, if so, how on earth did two or more killers leave nothing but one boot print as evidence? It defies explanation. It is an unpleasant list to have, but this case is top of mind for wanting to see a full resolution. I am haunted by it in a way that I don't feel about some other cases. So I can't begin to imagine the effect this has had on the parents or the other girls who lost friends, and their innocence, in the most horrible of ways. I have made this video to bring together every piece of information I could find, in honor of the three victims, from left to right, Michelle Guse, Lori Farmer and Denise Milner.